for the word. For those of you who are new with us, we are in the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles, if you are holding your Bible, you know, it is in the New Testament right after Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. If you would like a physical copy of the Bible, you can pick up a copy right at the back at our book corner, okay? We have English Bible, we have Chinese, Chinese bilingual English, we have Bahasa, Bahasa bilingual English, it's all there, okay? So go pick up a physical copy of the Bible if you want to follow it that way. Now, where did we last leave off? Where we left off is that the church, the people of God, are coming together to become a church family. Okay? Now, it would appear to be quite picture perfect because at the end of Acts 2, they are selling their possessions, they are coming together, they are meeting each other's needs and at the end of Acts 4, there is another account of them selling their possessions, giving to all as they had need, you know, and almost like this really beautiful, perfect commune. Was it always beautiful and perfect, this commune? Actually, I love Acts 6 because it shows you the reality of church life or family life because the context to the stoning of Stephen today is that the church had to deal with the difficulty of meeting everyone's needs. What arose was that the local uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews okay, were getting the, their daily rations of food. Okay? And what happened was that the Greek-speaking Jews, all, both sides Jews, okay? so it wasn't a racial issue, the Greek-speaking Jews who were coming in from the, from the diaspora, coming into Jerusalem from further places, were feeling left out from the distribution of food. And so a complaint arose. Right? A complaint arose that not everyone was getting served equally. And so the apostles appointed deacons, right? They appointed deacons to help to serve the people. There were seven of them, one of the magnificent seven, as Pastor Ramesh was just telling me. One of them is Stephen. Okay? Now, Stephen is the only one who gets a description, okay? Because the rest of them is like, it's like Stephen, a comma, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, comma, and then the rest, right? Philip, Nicanor, this guy, that guy, that guy. So I'm like, why does Stephen get a description, right? So king, man. Actually, quite king. You know why? Because immediately after this, Stephen does Stephen thinks. And when I say Stephen thinks, what I mean is that he's so full of the Spirit of God that even though his role is not directly uh, related to praying for people, not directly related to um, uh, sharing the word, debating, apologetics, or any of this uh, supposedly things, okay? Stephen is serving the people. Right? And as he's serving the people, he's praying for them. As he's serving the people, he's sharing the good news. And as he goes about doing this, there is so much power, signs and wonders starts taking place all around Stephen. Right? And people start coming to know the Lord. And out of this, a group of people 
from a synagogue. It's called the synagogue of the freedmen, okay? Not quite so freed from uh, the most essential things, okay? Um, it irks them. What Stephen does irks them. And they charge him, they trial him in another kangaroo court, you know? And spoiler alert, okay? They eventually drag Stephen out of the city walls. By the way, they are not supposed to kill people. Huh? They, 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 it's against their own law to just simply, you know, uh, uh, um, to take this in their, in their own hands, it's, which is why when it was Jesus' turn to be killed, they would not lay a hand on him. They needed to mechanize it so that it was the Romans who tried and killed Jesus, right? And so they should actually not be laying a hand on Stephen, except, except this time they did. This time, they lost patience. They had, they had no legal jalan, you know, uh, to get Stephen killed, right? So they drag him out of the city walls and they pelt him with giant rocks. Now, what does it look like? I have a few paintings uh, to show you. This is a Rembrandt, right? And this is Rembrandt to show you all these guys uh, 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 stoning Stephen. You've got some Sanhedrin members here. There's a young guy here sitting down with cloaks over his lap. I suppose that was Paul because this is the first introduction of, uh, of Paul. Then Saul, as he was known, you know, um, was described as supervising and watching over the cloaks as the people took off their robes and went to stone him. In other words, Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the main character of the rest of the book of Acts, was here at this point, you know, lending credence and endorsing this murder. Okay, very interesting. Okay, two things. One is, you always see paintings of Stephen. Usually, he looks really radiant and beautiful and almost like a young boy. It's because our Bibles describe Stephen as having the, 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 the look of an angel, such that even when they were trialing him and hurling all kinds of false accusations at him, he looks so radiant like an angel. So you see, he's got this kind of like Rembrandt has painted him with this cherubic, type of angelic face. By the way, Rembrandt painted himself, uh, this is his, uh, it's a self-portrait, yeah, he painted himself as, uh, as uh, inside the crowd of people stoning, stoning Stephen. Interesting note. Talk about, the, talk about the cherubic look, right? This is another painting of them hammering Peter, but he, you can see he's got this halo around him, but I'm not quite so sure if um, they were always stoned this way. Um, I found a photograph of a, of a film depiction of how they throw him into a pit. And it kind of makes sense because you can't run away when you're in a pit, you know? Um, so they, they, it, the, the text is silent. You know, so so they, they, it seems that the one way to think about it is that they throw him into a pit and then they pelt the rocks in, right? Firstly, you get a bit more, you get a bit more weight when you throw it downwards, right? <laughs> might, the guy might die quicker, right? Um, but actually, they can't run away, right? If not, then they can like, just keep running and you'll be chasing them with the stones and it might be more comical than anything. Regardless, Stephen dies. Stephen dies, right? Um, Today's story is the story not just of how Stephen died, of how Stephen dies, though we will get to some of that. We will look at how Stephen dies at the very end. What I'm more interested in is the charge against Stephen and what he says 
in response to the charge. So if you have your Bibles, and I've been encouraging you to bring your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, I want you to, to, to have them open at Acts chapter 7. Because in Acts chapter 6, Peter is, uh, uh, Stephen is seized, right? Uh, and the charge takes place in Acts chapter 6. It says in verse 13, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So this holy place is the temple, and the law is the law of Moses, okay? For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. So it's a little bit of a Chinese whispers, right? Okay, it's a little bit of Chinese whispers. They just didn't quite say he will destroy this place. He says, destroy this temple. I will raise it up in three days. And then later he clarifies and say, I meant this temple, my body, and I will raise it up on the third day, right? But again, Chinese whispers, so they are working on slightly fake news and they are saying that we have heard him say this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, this temple, and will change the customs that Moses gave us. In other words, to, 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 to pendek kata, the blasphemy against the temple and blasphemy against Moses were the two things that Stephen was charged for doing wrong. Now, Stephen, instead of just pleading not guilty, you know, twice, okay, to the charge of against blasphemy against temple, not guilty, blasphemy against Moses, not guilty. He launches into an extremely long exercise in storytelling. So if you look at your Acts chapter 7, it's quite literally 1,300 words long. I don't expect you to read the screen, right? I'm showing this to you for effect. He goes into a very long sequence of telling ancient stories. Now, there are a few parts of the Bible that retell the whole story from the start one, okay? You can go to Psalm 105, okay? It retells the whole story from the start, you know, from uh, uh, Abraham and then this and then this and then this, all the way until when they were, okay, from... The, from the position of God's blessing and how God rescues, right? And if you look at Psalm 106, it also does the same thing, telling the whole panjang lebar from the position of their sin and their wickedness, right? So that's quite interesting. You can go back and look at how Psalm 105 and 106 kind of come together and Stephen is doing something similar. He is drawing from the, from the, from the tradition of Psalm 105-106, right? He is retelling the whole story. He goes through the story of Abraham. He goes through the story of Joseph, the rescue of Moses. Moses versus the Israelites. Remember the Israelites were like fighting each other and then Moses tries to break them up and, and then the fellow tentang him, right? Okay? And then he launches, right in the middle of his defense, he launches his key attack against the council that is trying him. And then he goes on to see out the rest of his defense. He talks about Moses and against idolatry. He talks about the tent of witness, which was the tabernacle, you know. And then he talks about Solomon's temple, which is dealing with the charge of blasphemy against the temple, right? And after that, he launches from a defense right into a full throttle attack. Against, uh, against the Jewish rulers and then everything, complete mayhem after that. Complete mayhem. They scream, they're like stuffing their ears, they cannot tahan anymore, they drag him out of the city and then they bludgeon him to death, right? So, what we're going to do, I'm going to take you guys through each one of these and I want to show you what Stephen is doing. Because if you just 
pick up your Bible and you just read and you're not careful or you read quite fast, you may not notice what Stephen is doing. And you may be asking yourself, why this guy go and tell grandmother, grandfather's story? The guy is about to die, right? He's being charged for blasphemy against Moses and the temple. And then you have one chance to give your defence. You go tell Akong Ama's story, right? Why? Okay, I'll show you why. Defence number one, Abraham. Stephen says that Abraham, God called him out of his land, out from his family, led him into the land that you presently live on. So he references them. This land, Abraham led us into this land. He promised an inheritance to his offspring, even though at the time there was no offspring, right? And he made covenant with him. I've highlighted covenant because the rest of the argument will have shades and traces of, of Israel breaking covenant throughout. But here he's reminding them from the start that God made a covenant with all of us, right? But one day, there will be a nation that will enslave. Will enslave our people. And, and Abraham's offspring will be enslaved for 400 years. But God will judge this nation this nation, right? Abraham's offspring shall come out of the land and worship God. This is Stephen's first defense, that we came from a stock, we came from a background of covenant, but we are going to be enslaved by an evil foreign entity. Defense number two, story of Joseph. Story of Joseph goes like this. God finally gives Abraham descendants. Finally, he gets Isaac, his own son, with Sarah, right? And then Isaac begets Jacob. And then Jacob begets 12 sons. And in, in Stephen's way of saying, he calls them the patriarchs, the 12 patriarchs. But these patriarchs will be jealous of Joseph one of their brothers. And out of their jealousy, they will sell him into Egypt. So you notice uh, the pattern here, right? The, the thing that God is doing, then there is something evil, an evil entity doing something here, but God reversing what was done here. You all see the pattern? All of Stephen's stories will follow this pattern. Okay, the whole thing will follow this pattern. What does God do? God was with Joseph while he was in Egypt. God gave favor to Joseph and wisdom before the Pharaoh. And through Joseph, God would summon Jacob out from the land he was living in and move the entire family to resettle them in Egypt. That's his defense of Joseph, through the story of Joseph. Now you're thinking, how is this a defense? Huh? I don't get it. I still don't get it. I'm going to ask you, hang in there. But for now, you can see there is something God is doing. There is something an enemy is fighting back. And then God triumphs over what the enemy was doing. Okay, we're there? We're there? Okay. Third defense, the rescue of baby Moses. How does that work? Well, we all know, for those of us who know, if you don't know, the, they all resettle in Egypt and after many years, okay, a new king arises in Egypt who is not favourable to Jacob's family. And so, what does this new king do? Okay, they grew numerous in Egypt. The new king deals shrewdly with Israel. 
right? And as the family grows to become a tribe and a nation, 12 sons start having sons of their own and daughters, right? The new king deals shrewdly with Israel, forces Israelites to expose their infants to be killed. Interesting, huh? Interesting, huh? Okay? That when Stephen tells the story of this part of history, he doesn't talk about the slavery. Because he dealt with the slavery when he was talking about Abraham's one, okay? He dealt with the slavery thing. He's talking about the infants getting killed. Okay? How many of you think of somewhere else in the Bible when you see this infants getting killed? Herod, right? Right? Herod the Great, the massacre of the babies, you know, when Jesus was born, right? Ah, that's good. You're sharp, okay? But God is doing something. Though Pharaoh is doing this thing, God rescues baby Moses. He's adopted by the Pharaoh's own daughter. You know, can you believe it, right? And he's instructed in the wisdom of the Egyptians. Still telling Akong Ama's story, okay? That's defense number three. Defense number four. Moses and the Israelite. So it happened that one day Moses was walking as an adult man. He was 40 years old. And he saw an, an Egyptian slave owner beating up his Hebrew slave, right? And he bosong lah, obviously, right? You're beating up my own people, right? Okay? So Moses kills that Egyptian master. And several days later, he sees two Israelites, two of his own people, fighting against each other. So first one was Egyptian slave master fighting his own people. Now he sees his own brothers fighting each other. So he goes and tries to break them up. But, but, among the two who were fighting, the aggressor turns to Moses and questions his legitimacy. He says, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? In other words, it's not just, it's not just mind your own business. It's not just mind your own business. It is you are not a ruler and you are not a judge to, 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 to look into our matters. You are not the appointed person, right? And then he threatens to expose the crime he committed against the Egyptian, saying that, oh, why? You want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian the other day? Huh? Right? So now Moses knows that someone else knows about the murder. Essentially, Moses is being threatened with the exposure of what he did to the Egyptian. He's, he, he's frightened, right? So he flees. He flees into the wilderness, okay? But God was with Moses in the wilderness in his exile. And eventually, after 40 more years, at a grand old age at eight, of 80-ish, God sends Moses back into the land. As what? as a ruler and as a redeemer of his people to lead them out of Egypt. Stephen is very intentional when he purposely tells this story. He purposely quotes this, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And then he purposely says that, well, did not this Moses eventually come back as a ruler and redeemer for his people? Effectively saying that this guy's could not see that Moses was a ruler and a redeemer. Now, I want to tell you something here. I'll put pause for a moment here. You know what he's been doing so far? He is showing his credentials in knowing the story of his people. Stephen is showing that I know our be beginnings 
of Abraham. I know how we ended up in Egypt. Don't think I'm a stupid guy, right? He's saying that actually, more than that, I understand the things that happened to Moses and I hold him in high regard. I understand what happened to Moses that caused him to be able, God to be able to use him to take people out. He's honoring Moses. Don't you remember the charge? The charge against him. What was the charge against? The charge was blasphemy against Moses. Right? So he's going through the history to show his credentials. But at this point, he launches into his central core attack. He says this, this is the Moses, right? Because he's been talking about Moses. He says, this is the Moses, the same Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Church, you see this? Which two words pop up at you? Prophet, brothers, what else? What else pops up for you? Which words pop up? Like like me, right? Like me would pop up for you, okay? Okay? Among your brothers, another Jew. Like me, like Moses, credibility of Moses, right? Another two words should pop up to you if you've been following our Acts series because every time, okay, these guys go back to the Old Testament and they reference the Old Testament, okay, they say that God will raise up a prophet for you. God will raise up one of your sons, right? And this is a play on words to lend credence and to help people see that the prophet who is going to be raised up for you today, one day, is the raised up Jesus. Because the entire conflict is Jesus, whom you crucified, now resurrected, and having been resurrected, established as Israel's king and lord over the whole world. This is the core message of the disciples of Jesus. As they go through, go back, read Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, right? And you will see this happening everywhere. God has raised Jesus up. The resurrected Jesus is the point of conflict. And so when Stephen says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up. He is saying that if you know Moses, you will know that Moses told you about a resurrected Saviour one day. Now, we see this with no resurrection lens and we think he's just going to raise him up. Lah. God is just going to raise him up from child to, to adulthood, you know. But now that the resurrection has taken place, this has two meanings. God will raise up the way we always understood it. But not just that, God will raise up a prophet. Resurrection, do you see that this Jesus is the one whom Moses spoke about? God will raise up a prophet for you. So why are you fighting this resurrected Jesus? Why are you tentanging the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and was resurrected when it was this same Moses who told you that this was going to happen? Stephen is showing the entire Jewish council that he understands this scripture in light of Christ. He's not trying to show off that I'm cleverer than you. He's showing them that if you know your Jesus and you re-look at your Torah, 
You're going to see Jesus in your Torah. You're going to see Jesus in your ancient Jewish scriptures. You're going to see Jesus. Oh, that's Jesus. And that's Jesus when before you are blind to it. And so this is his key attack. It's right at the center of his entire defense. And after this, he kind of stops talking. Uh, he, he, he gradually moves away from defending himself. Actually, he's not really defending himself as if... I think he knows he's going to die, okay? I think he's defending the gospel. I think he's laying out the case and showing them what's going on. Defense number five is Moses against idolatry. What does he say here? Are we all good? I know I'm moving a bit fast. Am I moving too fast? Okay, all right. If you are... If I am just raised, okay, small church, you raise your hand... Pastor, too fast. You know, I can slow down, okay? <laughs> what happens next? Moses, in the wilderness, spoke with God at Mount Sinai, right? And received the living oracles and gave them to Israel. So, so Stephen is saying that this is the same Moses. He received all these things. He gave it to you, to you, right? But our ancestors, the Israelites, refused to obey Moses. In fact, we thrust him or if sometimes he may turn to the second person he say you thrust him right you thrust him aside and turn to Egypt you made a calf you made a calf of gold right you sacrificed to it even worse you rejoiced in it you celebrated the works of your own hands you fashioned it and then you prayed to it and said save us and he's, this is the charge now Stephen is turning the charge back against the Jewish rulers. He says, this is our heritage. This is what God is trying to do. And this is our, this is our, 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 our Nenek Moyang. This is us. This is our story. This is us. This is us, right? But God turned away from us. And then God gave us all of our ancestors over. He said, go. You want to worship, you want to worship idols? Go worship idols and you'll see how bad it will turn out for you, right? And so God gave them over to the worship of the hosts of the heavens, right? Which is essentially idolatry. And from here, he moves very quickly away from Moses. I think he has established that Moses, that he has credibility in understanding Moses. Maybe even more understanding than the council that is judging him. He moves from this to talk about the place of worship. Now, the place of worship from the beginning was the tent of witness. It was the tabernacle. They would set up a mobile tent. And in that specific tent, because they were caravan people, they were nomadic, right, in the wilderness for 40 years, they would set up tents and at the center or at the, at, at the, at the centerpiece of all their array of tents was the tent of witness. And in that tent of witness was God's holy presence. So even though God is omnipresent, He is technically everywhere. He's right here, right now, you know. But God's pregnant, powerful, manifest presence was there in one tent. And if you go into that tent, alang alang go into it, you can die, okay? Because so powerful was God's presence in that you cannot simply, simply, okay? Now, what Stephen is saying is that God has always had a place, an intersection between heavens, which is where God lives, and earth, which is where we live, right? And for the longest time, it was the tent of witness, right? Directed to God, by God, to Moses. So God gives, 
God gives Moses the clear specifications on how to set up this tent, the tabernacle, right? And according to the pattern Moses had seen from God. Instead of worshipping at the tent of witness, where did you worship? Where did our ancestors choose to worship? They preferred to worship in the tent of Moloch. Moloch was one of the deities, the local deities, you know, gods, if you can say, demonic, kind of like, kind of like spirit, you know, if for, for those of us who don't worship Moloch, right? I hope none of us do, right? You chose to worship in the tent of Moloch instead. And you also worship to the star of Refan. Star of Refan was another, Refan was one of the, the other gods in that local vicinity, right? So God gave you a proper way to worship and you chose to go and worship every other thing, right? And then he turns again. And he starts talking about the temple of Solomon. Now I want to pause here for a moment. Remember the church, right? Remember the church. Let's jump to this one, okay? Is it moving? It's not moving... Internet's down. Ah, okay, internet's down. Okay, so it's going to be a little slow on the slides. Bear with me, okay? It's quite a heavy teaching set deck, so don't worry, okay? Remember the charge? Blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against the temple, right? Now, it's quite clear that if this was a modern-day court, Stephen's plea over blasphemy of Moses would be a clear-cut not guilty. Stephen is saying, I'm not guilty of a charge, of your charge of blasphemy against Moses because you have misunderstood Moses. And if you understand Moses correctly, you will not say that I'm blaspheming him because you will say, you will see that the way I'm treating Moses is in honor of what Moses was doing to give us a signpost of the Messiah that was to come. Right? Now I want to pause here and, and, and give you this illustration. As you drive to Kampa, in two weeks' time, okay? As you drive to Kampa, you are going to pass by signboards that says Kampa this way, right? Okay? Or Ipoh. Maybe you will be guided by Ipoh first, right? Ipoh this way, Ipoh exit left, you know? And then Kampa this way, Kampa that way, right? Okay? Now, once you get to Kampa, once you finally get to Kampa, those signboards are no longer necessary because those signboards have already led you to Kampa. But it doesn't mean that you can look back and say those signboards are useless. It does not mean that those signboards were useless. They were necessary then to get you to Kampa, right? In the same way, what Stephen is trying to say is that now that you have the resurrected king, all the signposts that were pointing you towards recognizing this Jesus have done their job. Am I saying that Moses was unnecessary? No, Moses was necessary at that time as a signpost to point you towards a future resurrected king. Am I saying that the temple was unnecessary? No, the temple was necessary at that time to point you towards a future intersection between heaven and earth. 
But now, what is the intersection? Pentecost has happened. The Spirit of God has fallen on all the people. Now the Spirit of God is inside them. And later, Paul would describe them as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And now, they are the temple. They are the intersection between heaven and earth. Now, when Jesus teaches you to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship in spirit and truth. Jesus says, now, wherever you are, that is the intersection of where heaven and earth meet. That's in you, and that's in you, and that's in you. That's why we call ourselves new temple people. We no longer look to Solomon's temple. We are the temple. We no longer have to go and sacrifice bulls and calves and all that at the, at the temple, which has layers of entry, eventually the Holy of Holies. We don't have to do all that anymore because the Spirit of God now inhabits every one of us. Each one of you is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are new temple people. Now, if that sounds like strange language, it's, it's a... Maybe you can think of it as a very Jewish idea of temple. For us in Chinese, majority Chinese, or maybe if you're Hindu background, you know, a temple is where you go and then lots of people will pray, you know, there'll be many statues everywhere, maybe, you know, and then you'll pray, you put a joystick, you know, um, maybe you put a donation, uh, maybe there'll be a monk there to consult with you over things, right? But the idea, the basic idea is the same. In the temple, there is an image. And in the temple, with an image, the spirit of that image occupies that space. The same thing for us. In you is the image of God. God created you in the image of Himself. And now, His Spirit fills you so that you are the new temple. Today, everywhere you go, heaven and earth, intersect in you. That's why supernatural can take place through you. Because you are a gateway to the supernatural. You are the landing point for a ladder in heaven to transact on earth. Amen? Amen? Now, back to Solomon's temple. Does Stephen plead guilty or not guilty over blaspheming against the temple? It is not so clear. Because he says this, uh, I, want you, I want you to see very clearly. He says, Until the time of David, Israel worshipped in a tent as instructed by God. And then David had a great idea, which is his own idea, that I want to build a, a brick and mortar place for God. And God said, No, nope, I won't have you build that. You're a man of war. You spilled lots of blood, you know, so you won't build it for me. If anything, your son will build it for me. But actually, God had already said, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Did not my hands make all things? Yet Solomon built a house made by hands. Stephen is very clear. He purposely say a house made by hands. He purposely say a house made, built made by hands. Okay? He's being very provocative here. Okay? He says, You, through Solomon, we built a house made by hands and then turned it into a place of worship. But actually, God had already told us that there is no building that can contain His power. The church was blasphemy against the temple and against Moses. But now, I want to trace back to everything and show you more pointedly what Stephen has been doing the whole time. 
what Stephen has been doing is turning the tables against his accusers and saying that, you know what you are? You know what you guys are? You are like Egypt. You have enslaved God's people into a system of worship, into a spiritual environment that is bordering straight, in fact, right out slavery to the false standards that you have set. You are effectively Egypt. He says, you are the 12, the 11 brothers because you were jealous of Jesus and you sold him for 30 pieces of silver. To who? To the Romans. You, that's you. The, as was the 11 brothers, so are all of you. And then he goes on. He says, you are essentially Pharaoh because through Herod the Great who murdered all the little babies, this is a, you look just like them. You look just like Pharaoh who exposed. You know, it is God who keeps to, doing things to overturn all the wicked things that you and in, 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 by extension, all your forefathers, therefore you, right, have been doing. He says that you are exactly like the Israelite who cannot recognize when God sends you a ruler and a redeemer. God sent you a ruler and a redeemer. You are just like this guy because he had no eyes to recognize him. God had shown him, don't fight among your brothers. And you said, what? Who made you a ruler and a judge? He says, you don't have eyes to see who is your ruler and who is your redeemer. That's why Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised back to life and you're too blind to be able to see it. This was the, the prophet that God will raise up. Moses himself said it. You don't have ears to hear it. You don't have eyes to, to see it. And then he goes on. He said, Ha, huh, don't you remember? You made a calf. You, and idolatry, idolatry, and you rejoice in the works of your hands. He's going to go right in for the kill. You preferred the tents of Moloch. Wow. This is, this is like the the pressure and the temperature in the room is boiling already because the kind of flipping around of the tables and turning the accusations back on them. He is essentially saying, you guys worship idols. Do they worship idols? They don't think they worship idols. Okay? But they have idolized some things. They have idolized some of these things, right? Okay? And then he says that, you, don't you remember? Oh, you look at this made by a house, a house made by hands. You rejoice in the work of your hands. Now, Stephen is in such provocative, sensitive territory because he is effectively just said, very subtly, even though there's very little that's subtle about Stephen at this point, but he effectively equated the way they have gone about worshipping in the Temple of Solomon, how they use the Temple of Solomon, to the rejoicing of the work of their hands by making the calf. You see the parallel? Stephen is very clear about what he's doing. He's gone right in to say the way you've set up worship here in this temple is essentially no different from what you've done here. You have turned all this into an idol. Wow! It's crazy. It's absolutely scandalous. And the people listening to him 
are just completely enraged. It said, and Peter, Stephen just ends it this way, right? Like if, if he was defending some cause up till now, he's just completely taken off the traction controls. He's just gone bang maximum all the way now. You stiff neck people. Betahan already, right? He lets rip completely already. You stiff neck people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels. In fact, you are so privileged. And yet, you didn't keep it. What do you think happens after this? It's, it's the end already, right? Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now I've heard this preached before by someone who was tackling this text and it was said that you always see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. In all your scriptures, you will see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. The Son of Man seated at the right hand, right? Here, and I believe it is the only time where the Son is standing next to the Father. And it was said in a sermon I heard before that this is a picture of Jesus giving an ovation to Stephen. He gets up from his seat and he approves he gets up from his seat and he almost, almost as if, now the Bible is silent on what Jesus is doing, it only says he stood, he was standing. But you can think of it. I think it's, it's, it's within the range okay, of interpretation to say that Jesus in standing was approving. There is a parallel. You want to see the parallel? When they were stoning, there was Saul guarding the cloaks, approving of the murder. And at the stoning, there is Jesus standing, approving of Stephen's defense. I think it's a beautiful parallel because one day God is also going to reach out and get Paul and win Paul's heart over. And then he will be a very different man after that. But here, at least at this point, he says, Behold, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And when they hear this, there's just no turning back. They cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where have you heard this before? Jesus on the cross, right? Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice. Now, there's rocks going down on him already, okay? Yeah, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where have you heard this one before? Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when he had said this, so gentle, the way Luke describes it. He fell asleep. 
Everybody take a breath. <sighs> wow. I am somewhat near the end, right? How conformed are you to Jesus? Because when I see this, I see a man who has been totally conformed into the shape of Jesus. I see him mirroring Jesus so beautifully that at his point of death, it is literally like a parallel story. Like a parallel story. Jesus on the cross, into your hands I receive, receive my spirit, right? And Stephen says, Lord, receive my spirit. And on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Right? How conformed are we to Jesus? Now, I don't want to dwell on this. I think you should dwell on this. Okay? But I don't have a lot more to say about this particular question, except that the Lord desires to transform you. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 says that do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed, to be reshaped. That's why we've, we've themed our camp shape, right? To be reshaped into the pattern of the Holy Spirit. But really, I want to pose you a question. What would drive a mob to bludgeon a man to death like this? What would drive a mob to kill someone like this? You know, you only see people acting like this when there is a huge disagreement with that one individual, right? That whatever that one individual represents is so offensive to you, to not hear you, but you and your collective hurt identity, right? Like, all of it, like you're so offensed by this person that you will literally haul him out the gates and kill him. What would drive a mob to do this? Because I can tell you, this is not a first century problem alone. We have mobs in our day and age who will find some individual's ways, differences, so utterly offensive to their herd identity, they would isolate them and kill them like this. It still exists. I have heard of right-wing... Let me say this correctly. I don't want to say this wrongly. I've heard of right-wing conservative extremists who would do this to a transvestite. Are we that kind of Christians? God forbid, right? I don't think Jesus is there approving of that murder. There is a Saul of Tarsus somewhere who will approve of that murder. It's not Jesus. There are people in our own country. If you say the wrong thing, you offend the wrong thing, this can happen. You're a whisker away from this happening every single day of your life, except that most of us learn to play it safe. And we stay, we put a big buffer between us and anything of the sort. And we stay fairly safe and no one's going to bludgeon us to death, right? <laughs> but these kind of things still happen. Sometimes, in fact, often in the name of God. And I want you to know this. Sungai Bulo Church, I want to disciple you all this way. If there is an angry mob, I'm quite certain Jesus is not in it. It's quite a fair 
rule for life. If there is an angry mob, quite safe to say Jesus is not in it. And you don't need to get out of your house and pick up, you know, picket and, and signages and wear, put face masks on and join an angry mob to be an angry mob. You can do it from your phone. You can start cancelling people on your phone. You can be an angry mob on social media and join in tearing down people who are just whoever. Lah. You don't need to agree with all of these people. But the moment you join an angry throng to say, tear this fellow down, and you join them in the comments section, Jesus is not there. I can tell you quite safely, He is not there. And all you have, you are being led by Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor, the pre-converted Saul of Tarsus. You don't want to be led by that guy. He leads you into the ways of violence. He leads you down the road of of destroying people who are different from him. Now, I'm not asking you to be all-embracing and go out into, into a multi -div multicultural, diverse world and start embracing every single thing. You don't have to embrace everything you hear. But you must be civil. You must be, I give you better than civil, you must be Christ-like. And if Jesus was never part of an angry mob, neither should we. Amen? Final question. Would you recognize Jesus when He comes back? Because I can tell you the entire motif of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts is a story of people who failed to recognize Jesus. Completely missed it, too blind to see it. Their expectations were on something else. And they were so sure, so cocksure about that something else that my Messiah will look like this. He 100% will look like this. To be so, so completely confirmed, 100%.0.com, sure. My Messiah will look exactly the spitting image of this. No spiritual humility the technical philosophical word is epistemological humility right you, you don't have humility in what you know in the extent of knowledge you have right no humility to say that I may not know everything I know everything it will look exactly like this when the real Messiah comes you're waiting for this that's not Messiah that's not Messiah I'm waiting for this this one is still gonna come I'm still waiting for this this one's never going to come. Or this one's going to come. It is better for you if this one never comes. It's worse for you if this one actually comes. That's a devil. Because the Messiah comes like a thief in the night. Not that He wants to come and rob, steal, and destroy you. What, what, what Jesus means is that the Messiah comes in such a subtle way in such an unexpected way, in such an un, uh, un, un, un... What's the right word? What's the right word? In such an, uh, uh, a way that you did not... you were not ready for. Like a thief in the night. Caught you unawares. So be watchful and develop a taste bud 
a taste bud for the picture of Jesus. As you, that's why you must read your Bibles. You can't just listen to sermons online. There are a lot of pictures of Jesus that people are telling you online. And don't just listen to sermons in Sungai Buloh Church. Go read your Bibles. See and savour Jesus in your scriptures and develop a taste bud for how He is. Does He join angry mobs? No. Was He brutalised by an angry mob? Yes. That should be one piece of data in your head. This is how you recognize the Messiah. He is not from an angry mob. In fact, if anything, he is the one who is being brutalized by the angry mob. Data in your head. Keep reading your Bibles. Every time you see a picture of Jesus, right? I tell you another one, right? Jesus said there were two guys, both of them praying. One of them said, God, I thank you. You made me so righteous that you didn't make me like this lousy fellow here like this, but you made me so righteous. And the other guy said, Son of the living God, forgive me and give me mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I didn't hear the first guy's prayer. I heard this guy's prayer. That's data. That's data, right? Spiritual snobbery is not the way of Jesus. Spiritual humility and brokenness and confession is the way of Jesus. Keep reading your Bible. Keep storing information in your imprint about who God is. By the way, you don't need to go to seminary. That is called theology. Your understanding of God, right? Keep storing up an imprint about who is Jesus so that the day you see Messiah, you recognize Him. While everyone else, the Bible tells you, many will chase after false messiahs, right? Right? Many will chase after, yes! Yes, because they are so sure about what they, what, what they think Messiah is going to look like. Many will chase after false messiahs. Because if you read your Bible and you keep storing up an imprint of who Jesus is, when you see Him, by God's grace, you will recognize Him. And you will not fall for a lie. Don't fall for a lie. Amen? So right now, I want us all to just take a moment. I invite the worship team to come on stage. We are going to sing this chorus. It says, Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. That's an imprint of, of God. And you know what imprint that is? God is united in community. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, together. Right? And so any, any would-be Messiah who tells you, you can go strike it out alone. I'm not talking about you must be part of this church, right? I'm, te I'm telling you, anyone who tells you, go be a lone ranger, I don't believe in the church, the church is a, is, a human, is a human invention, blah, 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 that's not the imprint of God. God is in perfect community. And we are going to sing of that community. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. There is no lone ranger in the Godhead. God of glory, majesty, Praise forever to the King of Kings. Why don't we rise? Why don't we rise? Let us worship God and allow Him on this day to reshape our hearts. You don't need to go to camp to start having your heart reshaped. It happens here every Sunday. And for those of you who are not going, forgive me for mentioning it so often. You will be reshaped here even. 
and you can and God wants to meet you right here today you don't have to go there just to get reshaped you're reshaped here by God He's shaping your heart He's moulding your value systems He's He's working inside you salvation and a recognition of who He is Amen stand before the Lord right now Father in heaven Lord of all lords King of all kings God of glory You are majestic You are beautiful How powerful is your name How wonderful are your mercies over us Lord, you have revealed yourself through your scriptures You have shown yourself You have not made yourself so unsearchable You have made yourself knowable Church, I want to release this word because I just sense that for maybe one, even just one person here, the word I have for you, the Chinese word, Zhao Tao, our God can be found. Zhao Tao. Because maybe in your life, I just sense this over you, you have been saying to yourself, and I don't know what you've been searching for, but the word spoken over you right now in this season is Zaoputao. I don't know what you're looking for, but every day it is Zaoputao. The Lord wants to say this to you. If it's you, I hope you receive it. In Christ, Zaoputao, He can be known. He can be found. He can be understood. Today, He wants you to know Him. He wants you to find Him And He wants to find you Now may the Lord bless you May the Lord keep you May the Lord turn His face to look at you And be gracious to you May the Lord turn His whole countenance to face you And give you shalom And all of God's people say Amen. Amen. All of God's people say, Amen. Amen.